is up, friends and family? It's time for another episode of Hype is My Superpower under less than ideal conditions. I'm Steve Storman in Brooklyn, New York, not in my usual spot in the studio in the office because converting it to guest room. And Will in Santa Barbara, California is on a mobile hotspot on a tablet in the yard. How's it going? Yeah, Will? man. Hi. I'm glad you can hear me. I've got some Bluetooth headphones on. I have my phone as a mobile hotspot feeding my tablet because it's just a Wi-Fi tablet. <laughs> and we're on however recording on the tablet. Fifteen minutes before we were supposed to record, power went out of And this was and, the one uh, time the entire week when we were both free to record. So we just said, screw it. We're gonna make it work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you know what? Uh, yeah, this, so is, this, this is why fun. we're professionals, you know? This is why. Exactly. <laughs> show must go on. The show must go on. And <laughs> giving our new editor a real treat to. Uh, I know. Second go. <laughs> oh, just man. use the, the highest quality sound available here. Oh, poor yeah. <laughs> uh So, how's your, how's your uh, week been? It's been all right. It's been uh, wet. There was a hurricane here. Just um, a little bit. Just a little bit. Thankfully, avoided all the flooding. Worst I had was a, a soggy walk to get some pizza. But besides that, all good. Can't complain. Happy that my mom's coming. Just been cleaning like a madman, getting ready. So I've got a smell of bleach and I've got bathroom grime under my fingernails. Perfect, perfect mood to do a podcast. How about you? How's your week? <laughs> uh, week was good. I did my first Twitch stream last night. Yeah, you did. Um, Last night being Friday, so we're recording one day earlier than usual. The two stream was a lot of fun. I had people from like every walk of life in there. I had people from some of the discords from like Call of Duty that I've been involved in. Heck yeah. Um, had personal friends from, from high school. I had friends from like just other games that I've met. One of the guys from my alliance in the free Marvel game that I play Sick. came in for a little bit. So it was, it was just a lot of fun. Good times close, were had. Closing in on 50 followers already. You've only, yeah. only done one stream since we're starting, man. I know, man. So, yeah, I'm at like 40-something followers. If Once I hit 50 and once I have eight total hours of streaming on three different days within a week or three within a rolling 30-day period, something, okay. something, something, sure, sure. Uh, then I become affiliate and then oh, I nice. can make a little bit of money off. And then it also opens up more options like channel points and yeah. uh, subscribers and all that other stuff. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Awesome. Yeah. So if anybody wants to go check that out, that is twitch.tv slash silver dreamer, silver with a Y. Mm-hmm. Because I was a dead board as a child and I have not changed my screen name since. <laughs> I feel like everybody's screen name is like, Oh, man, I thought this was really profound when I was, like, 15 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Either that or, like, oh, I thought this was really cool when I was 13 years old. Yeah. When I was a preteen, I thought replacing I's with Y's and replacing K-S with X was the coolest, most amazing thing you could possibly do with the English language. Uh, I've been rolling (laughs) with it ever since. (laughs) embarrassingly flight songs the one that i stick with most often is something that i thought was you know just sounded super cool when i was like 21 and that's not really that much better (laughs) (laughs) i can drink 
flight song. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, should uh, so should we, uh, should, we should we like do our job? Actually, do a podcast? Yeah, why not? Yeah. What did okay, you read this so, week? Since we're recording one day early, I didn't get to read Avengers. I'm so sad. But I did read three okay to pretty good books. Didn't you read, didn't you read uh, Immortal Hulk this week? Yeah, but I'm downplaying it because <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I, was, I was concerned for you there for a second. <laughs> I'm, I'm downplaying Immortal Hulk because I can't go into too much detail because I'm going to be making you read it. And right, so, right. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go into extreme detail, but I did read Immortal Hulk Volume 8, and I read Arrow Volume 2, which was okay, and I read Black Cat Volume 3, all dressed up, which was fun. Quick kind of week for me. Nothing was terrible. Arrow was the worst, but it wasn't... I went in expecting terrible writing, and it was okay. There you go. So it was better than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> It was a quick week, but uh, some good stuff to talk about. Which, uh, where are you starting? I guess I'll start with... Uh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go in the order that I read them. Immortal Hulk was my first one, because I wanted to read it last week, and I didn't get to. Yeah. Um, and I was going to, and then we talked, and you're like, I have a lot of Nomon, and I was like, cool. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go for it next week. But, so, this is Immortal Hulk Volume 8, still by Al Ewing. This is... It's, it's just it's literally just continuing the story. So last volume we were dealing with Demnu, who is like this alien that has incredible telepathic abilities. He's old school Hulk villain. This is the first time I've seen him come back right. ever. We are now dealing a lot of this volume was dealing with Green Door stuff and the mindscape of the Hulk. Could um, you give me a rundown on both of those concepts real quick? Yeah. So the green door, <laughs> so the green excited. door is an established concept from this run, from Immortal Hulk. Okay. For all of the gamma-powered individuals, what unlocks their gamma-fied ability, like Sasquatch or Hulk or Abomination mm -hmm. or the Leader, is they see this green door, and okay. that's been like this, like metaphysical reference. Okay. But now we're spending time, We through the volumes, we learn that the green door is a connection to the below place. Mm. And we get introduced to the concept of the one below all. Which is so, the inverse of the, the way that they think of or portray the Christian God in Marvel. Except also there is a separate Christian God, right. kind of. So, yeah. So anyone who reads Ghost Rider knows that there is actual, like, I'm the same along the pantheon of like Norse gods, the Egyptian gods, yeah. you know, the Japanese gods, the Hindu gods. There's also like Christianity, heaven, God, angels. We never actually see God. He doesn't have sure a character, but all of the angels and they all report to God. But all those angels show up in Ghost Rider, in Ben Riley, Scarlet Spider. But yeah, so classically, there has <laughs> been. There's, so there's all the gods and then all the celestials and all these super powerful beings. We have the, the black priests and the builders, yada, yada. Right. Above all of that in Marvel, there's always been the one above all. 
and, and even above is, like the celestial constant or the the constants like above yeah all you know, the all galactus the or yeah. the collector or the living tribunal or, or eternity mm-hmm. like all of these things that aren't even really entities just concepts that they draw with a, a body mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all these physical embodiments death. of yeah. different of different concepts of of life and death and all that kind of stuff there's always been the one above all that is like it's formless it is incredibly all-powerful and it exists outside of all reality the fantastic four have met the one above all in the comics before the most common representation of the one above all is typically Stan Lee or Steve Ditko or <laughs> whatever the writer is for that comic at the time. Sure. So it's kind of so conceptually, it's like the comic book characters going and seeing their creators kind of a thing. That's cool. Um, that's one above all. And then in Immortal Hulk, we get introduced to the one below all, which is a brand new concept, brand new character that we have. You know, the Marvel Universe is like this giant baseball diamond. <laughs> uh, comes, the one to the left at, of all at a the point, one to the yeah. right of all <laughs> you have a point at the top and now you have a point down at the bottom so yeah. one below all because you know devils there's so many of them there's so many different hells mephisto is your classic christianity devil but now we have a one below all who's more evil quote-unquote than mephisto so sure. The green door gives us a view into the realm below all kind of a thing. Okay. And that, an that connection is what breeds all of these gamma-powered individuals. That was an excellent synopsis. Thank you. Hey, yeah, no problem. So <laughs> through the years, they have explored Bruce Banner in every possible way. <laughs> and anyone that knows anything to a degree about the Hulk, there's been multiple versions of the hulk for lack of a better term mm-hmm. there's been like a smart hulk there's been joe fix it who used to live in vegas who was a gray hulk when hulk first appeared like in hulk number one kind of thing he was a gray hulk also there's been the dumb hulk that has terrible grammar and just <laughs> all these different iterations of hulk and through immortal hulk we actually explore why there's all of those and bruce banner is actually actually has did dissociative yeah identity disorder and the all those different hulks are literally different personalities in his mm-hmm. head and so we've spent time especially in this volume kind of in the last couple exploring the mindscape where all those hulks are hanging out when like savage hulk like the world breaker hulk who's just angry and can break a world like break <laughs> a planet with a with a punch when he's in control you have joe fix it and bruce banner hanging out on the mindscape talking to each other Okay, sure. I think in volume six, they established there's like, I think, six Hulks on top of Bruce. And they all have a very distinct relationship with Bruce. And through this title, they've been kind of coming together as like a team and working together. Mm. Whereas classically, they've been at odds with each other. Yeah. And so a lot of this volume is kind of hanging out on the mindscape and doing some uh, Hulk on Hulk conversations. Hulk on Hulk bonding. Yeah. I can say because it's on the cover that the leader is involved. And we okay. haven't seen the leader until now. Oh, um, within this run? Yeah. Okay, And cool. the leader is your classic Hulk, like, prime villain. You have, yeah. like, Spider-Man and Green Goblin. You've got Captain America, Red Skull. You have right. Hulk and the leader. 
yeah. If I'm not mistaken, the the kind of concept of the leader is like, what if the gamma, like everything that the gamma did for Hulk's, like what strength is for Hulk, intelligence is for the leader. Like the gamma rays did that to him instead. Yeah. So his name is Samuel Stearns. When Sam Stearns got irradiated with gamma energy, it all went to his head. Um, <laughs> metaphorically and physically and so he has this giant head that and it's all covered it's all brain and so <laughs> he has just immense processing power he's never referred to when when we talk about like most intelligent even just most intelligent villains sure which is kind of i feel like he's getting a bad rap <laughs> because like to your point hulk's gamma radiation created strength sam's Gamma radiation created intelligence. You'd think he would be up there, but he never and not, gets. And not just like any strength for the Hulk, like theoretically limitless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they just don't do that with Sam Stearns. He also has he also has a telepathic ability to control minds and stuff. Yeah, like in my head, he's more a evil Charles Xavier okay. than he is a like evil Reed Richards. Okay. So, he's so like, maybe uh, that's where it's at. It's just like his his mind, instead of going to extreme intelligence, it just develops the telepathic sure. abilities. Yeah. Just okay. that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, he's he's never touted as like one of the intelligent ones to be wary of. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, so he is involved in this volume. And I'm very excited. Okay, um, cool, cool. It was it was a fun read. So Black Hat Volume Three. Black Hat Volume um, Three. So La- yeah. Okay, I'm trying to remember what what I recall of the last volume of Black Cat. I remember a scene where she went to Vegas and they were using her luck probability powers to screw with casinos in order to get the attention of somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she has this like technological implant that screws with luck. Okay. I don't know how that works out, but she sure. can turn it on and off. Something, something wants. comics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um <laughs> She's just going around doing heists. She had a run-in with like Kendra and the Thieves Guild and the okay. New York Thieves Guild and that right. stuff. Because Black Cat is so amazing at what she does and she was trained by the best. There was this whole legacy storyline of her dad or her trainer and his best friend's protege. The best friend supposedly got betrayed by the White Fox, who's the one who trained Black Cat, who was also Black Cat's dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so something, the something protege- comics. Yeah. Something, something comics. And so the protege has climbed up the Thieves Guild. White Fox is no longer involved, but he's still alive. And she wants Black Cat to join the Thieves Guild because she is um, the Black Cat. She is right. one of the most successful thieves out there. It primarily follows Black Cat, Felicia Hardy, going around doing like two issues of thieving and how that action plays into her grand scheme kind of a thing cool um it's been it's been fun so so yeah she went to vegas and got the you know pit boss's attentions in this one she needed to steal gosh okay so she wants to do this like and this is this is carryover from last volume and i don't remember it but (laughs) (laughs) the big heist is something that has to do with some interdimensional ridiculous comic stuff. Um, <laughs> of course. And the final piece is the key. And the key 
has to be fabricated. It's, so yeah, it's a dimensional resonant. Like that's, she's black hat. She doesn't need dimensional, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> she needs a key. And the only thing that can fabricate the key that they need is at Stark Unlimited. And so now she's going to go steal from Tony Stark. Sure. Which is the big test because, so she has her two like go-to goons. This mm-hmm. big guy, this big muscly guy, and this scrawny like tech guy. So okay. she has a cue and she has a muscle. And she is currently teamed up with her dad, Black Fo- Silver Fox, and this other lady who got introduced or brought back to Marvel continuity. Wait, Last he's, ca- he's called Silver Fox? He is Silver Fox, yes. Is he just and like he this? He is a Silver Fox. Okay, yes. I'm glad. <laughs> yes, he is, he is your classic. Oh, textbook yes. definition of a silver fox absolutely <laughs> yeah so felicia's like okay well how are we going to deal with breaking into stark industries he has the best security he's got the best tech they're like oh well you know we have to play to his weaknesses what are his weaknesses oh redhead <laughs> so <laughs> and vanity and so yeah they create this persona for felicia of a tech writer that has this long history of writing articles that critique Tony Stark for not thinking big enough. So that's her in. She puts on disguise. She goes redhead and she hates redheads because of Mary Jane. Uh, and so like she keeps on thinking of all these little one-liners, just like, why does it have to be redheads? It's always redheads. Um, <laughs> Tony's a head of security is Bethany McCabe. She's a redhead. And so sure. like, when she like crosses paths with her, she's like, ugh, redheads. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so she gets a meeting with Tony and Tony's like, yeah, you're, um, you're, I haven't heard of you until now, but like, I've read some of your articles and you're very, um, you don't like me much. She's like, yeah, you don't think big enough. And he's like, you know, <laughs> I brought myself back from the dead. That's, that's kind of a big deal. And she's like, yeah, but you didn't even give yourself any upgrades. <laughs> and she shows her like retractable claws that she has. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, huh, interesting. She's like, I know, right? So anyway, um, <laughs> she goes down into the fabricator, fabricates the key. And then her way of getting out is she fabricates her own Iron Man suit. <laughs> it, it actually, it looks kind of cool. <laughs> it lo- okay. Are you, if I had said the term Hatsune Miku, do you know who that is? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's, right it's, off of me. That's fine. Um, she's like, she doesn't even have an anime. She's literally just like the go-to anime icon. She's like a J-pop cartoon. Wait, is she, wait, wait, wait. Is she the fake pop star? Yeah. Okay. With, yeah, the, my, with like, with, she's got the green hair, the green my buddy, my buddy Simon was telling me about her. Yeah, I don't know anything about her other than the fact that she's everywhere. <laughs> but she doesn't have an anime. She's not from anything. No, she's I think literally... she's she's just like she's like a VTuber, except like a music star. Yeah. She's like this anime character that just sings pop songs. Yeah. And got incredibly famous for it. Yeah, it's insane. But anyway, point is her design, she has these like giant light green pigtails. And uh, okay. Black Cat's Iron Man suit has okay. giant pigtails. Yeah, yeah. And she's got her claws. It's, just, it's kind of a cool design. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the next issue is, that's literally, like, that whole heist happens in the first issue. Because there's only actually three issues in this book. 
it's two issues of that and then there's the annual so yeah the first issue is just that and then the second issue is chase and literally duping tony and at the same time getting a little revenge on the thief protege (laughs) and she didn't stick it to the redheads but she knocked out the cave she's like haha <laughs> and then took her security clearance to get around um sure. that was fun and then in the annual she does she does a heist on the magia cool. um the magia <laughs> apparently have this wedding ritual where two warring families have two members of their family marry they go to a ring and they find it out the one that survives wins the like disagreement sure. kind of thing and, and for all, anybody who's not familiar with the comics, the Magia in Marvel is literally the Mafia. It's just yeah. like, what if we spelled it different? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, the, the, yeah, whenever you pull up the Magia, they're all in those like suit suits. They are your classic cookie cutter Mafia characters. They're one of the like five big crime families in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, we typically talk about crime families in like a Daredevil comic. Yep. But Alicia Black Cat has ties to the Magia in the past. I believe it was a deal with the Magia that gave her her luck implant. I think. Don't know. For okay. Sure. Interesting. Regardless, she's got a little history with them. So she infiltrates this wedding and poses as the bride, and she needs a plus one with her. And so she convinces Spider Man to go with her. <laughs> Um, Your favorite pairing of all time. Yes! Ah, so great. So (laughs) this is the second time wedding stuff has come up between Black Cat and Peter. uh, Felicia and Peter or Black Cat and Spider-Man. I don't know why I interchanged them. But um, (laughs) the first time (laughs) was Black Cat doing a theft, Pete stopping her. And he's like, why did you have to like steal that giant, like all this jewelry and that giant ring, blah, blah, blah. And Felicia's like, because. And she gets down on one knee and she's like, I want you to marry me. And he's like, I, wait, what, what? And she slices him on the leg and, <laughs> and she's like, bye. And, she's, and so there's the like little box of like, you have to go to extremes with Spider to like throw off his spider sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it's just Spider Man after he's like, oh, my leg, my heart. so so um the the only reason why i talk about that is because they reference it in this in the annual um but anyway so they do the wedding quote unquote but the wedding is between two other characters and so they're not technically married because they're different names aha sure (laughs) loophole (laughs) but In the catacomb where they're supposed to fight, there's, you know, underground stuff and traps and spider sense stuff. And then they get the loot and the agreement was that there's these two bags of money. One of the bags is going to go to the couple that they helped out and to give them a new life outside of the Magia. Um, Black Cat's take is she's... She agreed with Spider-Man that she was going to donate it all to charities and she, and she has to get receipts. She's like, fine. So <laughs> shenanigans here and there, blah, blah, blah. They do it. Spider-Man is like, okay. Oh, she was like, hey, me and the boys are going to go get drinks. You want to come with us? And he's like, I actually, I got to, I have a thing. And she's I'm, like, yeah, I know. I'm and sorry. Fine. Whenever, what, 
you just saying me and the boys in the context of Spider-Man just makes me think of that meme. <laughs> the four, yeah, yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> um, um, that meme took off. That meme was um, ridiculous. In case somehow people don't know, there's four members of the Sinister Six from the 60s Spider-Man in a little like half circle, just making real shit-eating grins, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's all just like me and the boys doing yada yada yada. Me and the boys about to go get some rum. Me and the yeah. boys. Anyway, so she's like, fine, I'll see you later, Spider. He goes off, and then she's like, so guys, um, I'll split the third bag of cash uh, with the three of us, and let's go get drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so so she came out on top. She, I, she is so much fun. Like, did you ever watch, like, Ocean's Eleven, the newer no. one with, like, George Clooney and all no, the other I never, I never saw any of those pretty movies. boys. Yeah. Okay, so how about literally any heist movie? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Um, Every volume of Black Cat is a heist movie. That's awesome. That's such and a good... And it is so much fun. That, that's, a, that's a genre that... I mean, you can just do anything. It, it's like how in the MCU, like, they kind of proved, like, oh, you can just do any genre of movie and just put yeah. slap, slap some superheroes on it and it, and it works. And <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I like seeing that happen in the comics, too. Absolutely. Black Cat flirts with Spider-Man so much. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so she, uh, at the end of this, they restart uh, the Black Cat numbering for some reason. Okay. But they keep going with the same number of volumes. So Black Cat volume four is going to be Black Cat number one, but it's also going to be Queen in Black. It's going to be a side story. Okay. So the last one, Arrow. This will be relatively quick. Yeah, um, so if I remember, so, sorry, if you started doing your own recaps for Domon, and now I want to do it for, for your comics, too. Now that we're at a point where okay. there's there's been, you know, a volume of, at least one volume on this pod of all of them. So Arrow is, uh, is she the, so she's one of the characters who was developed for Marvel Future Fight mm-hmm. and got, successful enough or get gathered enough interest that they decided to port her over to 616 in the comics is she the architect and she's and she's chinese yes okay yeah she's based in based in shanghai she's a a successful architect and she is this air-based uh superhero and we have to kind of just entirely understand her as you know meant for the chinese market and not really yeah uh, <laughs> much m- much uh attempt to you know appeal to this traditional uh, american comics uh, audience right and so a couple of things happened in this volume that i really liked. so the first volume pretty much these white spears have been showing up around shanghai Anyone who approaches them, all of a sudden these giant white spears break up into like different guardians and they've been attacking anyone who gets within a certain range. And then at the end of the volume, we get introduced to Madame Wong and she's like, hi, Lei Ling, I'm our architect lady. I know your arrow. Mm. If you want help with these spires, let me know. Okay. And that's all we got. So okay. volume two, another six issues kind of dives into more of that. Turns out there's 108 spires across Shanghai. 
She's trying to deal with those. And Madam Wong introduces herself as another person with air power. And that just conceptually is just very interesting. You're like, what's going, what's, what's going on here? She basically, so she just knows she is the plot moving device for this book hmm. in, in the sense of she knows she has all the answers for Arrow. She knows how to train Arrow into uh, getting her to learn new abilities. Okay. And she knows where the spires come from. She knows why they're there. So instead of having three issues of Arrow finding out on her own, they spend four pages just telling us. Okay. <laughs> sure. It's a nice way to just speed kind of like, things along. Yeah. Exactly. We're moving it forward because this is a brand new character and we're trying to establish her in 616. Yeah. So it's just like, move, 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 move. Yeah. Sounds they, like this is her the from one, the future. That's, I'm just putting my, my finger on this right now. That would be really interesting. But then that will be time travel. And that's yeah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> what it turns out is after her first training session, we get a little like monologue, inner monologue from Madam Wong. Ancient history. <laughs> and this is where we get into a new classic, like prehistoric earth. Somehow this has to fit into what's been established around the other parts of the world ever. There used to be giant monsters or giant beings around that like kind of ruled the earth before humans established any sort of dominance. Okay. Ignoring dinosaurs. dinosaurs. We're talking okay. about that. <laughs> And so we have giant trees the size of skyscrapers, giant fish that could fly, mm. giant camels that had cities on their back. Okay, cool. Giant dragons that literally are the Great Wall of China. That's pretty dope. So we have this like this new like creation uh, myth going on over yeah. here, and basically those large beasts served as cities for humans and then eventually humans figured out how to use technology on their own and they decided they didn't need those monsters anymore they created these white spires and used these spires to get rid of all those giant beings yeah in that raid in that purge one girl survived by jumping into some water and hiding and one of those beings survived by shunting off into the stars. Interesting. Okay. The girl comes back and she sees a, those beings are called nests. She sees a nest and it's almost dead, but they protect each other. And they basically go into this like slumber. Thousands of years pass. Sure. Of that course. child is Madam Wong. Ah. Uh... Yeah. Turns out that child's Madam Wong and she has, these abilities from the nest. She wants to get rid of these 108 spires. So she can, white spikes is what she calls them. So she can bring the other nest from the sky back and they can reestablish mm -hmm. um, their dominance over the world. That is the backstory and introducing her as the antagonist. Arrow is wondering if there's a non-violent approach to these spires because they only activate when people get within a certain radius. So right. is there a way to coexist with them? Mm -hmm. uh, Madam Wong is like, when have you ever known humanity to coexist with something they don't know? Ooh. They don't understand. And they're like, oh, it's true. 
um, <laughs> because X Men. So that was an easy, <laughs> that was an easy segue for them to bring up anything from Six One Six. Sure, <laughs> but they didn't, and I was like, oh man. Uh, <laughs> but then in the last three issues, so the first three issues are introducing the backstory, introducing Madame Wong, and introducing the training segments for Arrow. Okay. The next three issues are dealing more with moving the plot forward, but Iron Man shows up. Huh. So, yeah. So Tony Stark is coming to her firm because they have a bid for a Stark Unlimited building uh, within Shanghai. So Tony comes over, and this is one of the things that is, I really is that like. What, is that what uh, they're calling? The uh, is that what they're calling Tony's company these days? Stark Unlimited. <laughs> it's been through so many names. So Stark Resilient is the one that he opened up after uh, Secret Invasion right. when he had to rebuild nothing. Yep. Stark Resilient is still a company, and uh, um, and Pepper is the head of that. Gotcha. Stark Unlimited is the one that he was doing all that VR stuff with, and oh, okay, that he started right. with Arno. Right. And so Stark Unlimited is, is the current Stark Industries, basically. Okay. There is no Stark Industries anymore. There's Stark Resilient and Stark Unlimited are the two that are up. Stark Resilient is more of the free energy, nonprofit, good feelings company. Sure, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Stark Unlimited is like heavy tech and okay. all that kind of stuff. Sure. So Stark Unlimited is opening up a Shanghai branch. The company that Arrow is one of the main architects for is has a bid for their building, their construction. And so Tony comes out to have like one of the final meetings with it. Okay. So Arrow or Lin Lei is mm. awestruck and starstruck. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is a veteran. Like I would love to be able to like talk to him about like superheroing and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, one thing I really liked. So in the entire comic, everyone is, you know, speaking in English, blah, blah, blah. Tony's speaking in English, and then after they meet in the elevator, she leaves, and his two bodyguards talk to him in brackets. Oh. And to, to like, and that's the Universal comic, um, right? Show that they're speaking in a different language. Yeah, um, this is being and translated. Yeah, and then it'll be it'll be a little asterisk, and in a box will say translated from this language. And yep. so they're talking in, in in brackets, and it says translated from English. And I thought that was the coolest thing. So then all of a sudden you have this like retrospect that this entire book is literally in Chinese. That's cool. Um, yeah. I really liked that. That was uh, awesome. It just never even crossed my mind because everything's in English, obviously. But like, I can't imagine how obnoxious would it be if every single speech bubble had the brackets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that right. everything was translated from Chinese. And then you have the two pages <laughs> right. of english speaking people yeah um and so i thought that was really cool that is cool. just like the, we are in china it doesn't even make sense that we would right. think that anyone would speak otherwise <laughs> right so i thought that was super cool and then in the arrow iron man team up and i this has always been a pet peeve of mine but <laughs> iron man is like hey do you have like an earpiece or something and she's like what Oh, yeah. Uh, and so she, like, pulls out, like, a, a Bluetooth headset she has for her phone. He fucking just, like, kind of does one of these things and, uh -huh. like, reprograms it. And so now it's tuned into his uh, helmet. And so okay, cool. she, puts on the, she, she puts on the Bluetooth and now they can talk. Because nice. 
just as this this unsaid constant that everyone's got an earpiece totally um in every single superhero battle which yeah never even if they just and met so, right now and yeah, yeah. Even, even like every single like avengers forming storyline <laughs> right all are randomly there they never just met there's like oh hey uh in case anything pops off do you want an earpiece <laughs> like, <laughs> right. they just never do that and so when <laughs> so when you have someone like arrow here who's never crossed paths with any other superhero he's like hey can we like can we earpiece it up <laughs> and just i really liked that they did that that, that was, is a good that touch. was nice yeah <laughs> And then so, you know, more shenanigans with other white spires. Arrow is still under the impression that Madame Wong is here for her support and to train her. Doesn't know her connection to the white spires. Doesn't know Uh, that the white spires are there to keep the nest away. It ends with one of the other architects that works under Lin Lei. He's your typical architect madman. Um, (laughs) The typical one one of of the. Yeah, one of the spires showed up in his construction site and he was like, well, this is mine now. Um, Nobody touch it. This is mine. It's a beautiful piece. I'm going to generate so much revenue from tourism because it's shown up on my Uh, property. It's one of the first ones that Arrow destroys. So now he's all pissed. Arrow owes him a billion dollars in tourist revenue. (laughs) And then he saw the whole thing with Arrow and Iron Man. And he's like, oh, well, that, that explains it. I just need to become a superhero. And that's literally how it ends. Okay. He's, All right, guy. He's he's making himself out to be the the next villain that airs man. All right. But in the preview or like you know next time, it's yeah. Atlantis attack. It's kind of funny because there was a cut to Lin Lei meeting with her boyfriend, and it said a long time ago. And I think it feels like they're trying to establish all this stuff is like in the past this went mm. down but atlantis attacks is a key and black crossover storyline okay. so this so, is a new atlantis attacks and not the one from the 80s not the old school yeah okay this is current namor putting together his underwater cabal and he has recently declared that humans are not allowed in the ocean anymore yeah <laughs> good luck there bud yeah and his underwater cabal are all established water-based villains there are no other heroes in here and so the invaders have been trying to reach reach out to him to be like dude what are you doing he's like i'm done i'm out (laughs) like i'm pissed humans have tread on our waters too long blah 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 blah. so we haven't had a chance to talk about that because i think right before we started doing this. I read the second volume of The Invaders. Um, okay. That was that really kind of established all that. Avengers Volume 2 established the cabal that he put together. Uh-huh. And all that has happened before we've done this. And after they established that that cabal was there, they've only kind of cameoed here and there. Interesting. Um, the big thing that's going to happen is going to be this Atlantis attacks. Because gotcha. like... Like Namor showed up in like the Magneto annual, the giant size Magneto. Right. In Dawn. But the whole workings of what his cabal are doing in his war against the Earthers or the Landwalkers, Air yeah. Breathers, I think is what they're called. 
<laughs> that didn't obviously get didn't get addressed because they're dealing with something else there. So we'll finally see that come to a head when I read King and Black somewhere down the line. <laughs> Sweet. King and Black will probably be, I guess, around November okay. by the time I get there. King and Black, for those keeping track, is the 2021 crossover story. Uh, the uh, big crossover event. Okay. Empire was 2020s. King and Black is 2021. So yeah, so that's what I read. Nothing wild, but good times. Uh, there's good moments in all three books. Awesome. So, um, Nomon. Yeah, I had a shorter I don't chapter. Have, I don't have my notes. Is it a shorter chapter? Yeah. So just then? Excellent. Yep. <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we're doing another, this is another Sans Serif memory yeah. from Linda or Diana Hunter. Gosh, who were we following this time? It was Athenaeus. Athena, yes. Okay. Dang it. This is why I have, this <laughs> is why I have my note, notes with me. Give, give me a, give me a quick recap. Yeah, no problem. Or, okay. So- I guess I should say, does this, does this chapter feed off of the last chapter or are we doing another memory? Oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> yeah this is not another Athenaeus chapter but as a quick recap she has a dream and meets with a demon who tells her that her dead son's soul has been cut into five pieces and right. it's denying him rest in the afterlife oh yes and the, the egg we yeah. have the giant egg and the, yep. and the cardinal egg yeah okay she wakes up being kidnapped and brought to the house of this um upper crust political dude in ancient rome it's the end of the fourth century ce she is the love the former lover of augustine of hippo who would become saint augustine later she comes in to do alchemy stuff because this mysterious object called the chamber of isis popped up but she happens to know it's a hoax because she made it up herself Right, Things. and she made it up to debunk somebody else. Yeah, so the whole thing is it's just getting too weird and too many impossible things are happening, and so she says, screw it, I'll just try and use the Chamber of Isis to create the Alkahest, the universal solvent that acts as basically the power of God. They want me to bring this hoity-toity dude back, but I'm going to bring my son back instead. So she goes through the ritual, and quite absurdly, the vessel fills up with light, and that's where it ends. So, this is another Seraph chapter. Chapter 5, it's called The Combination 2, T-O. It's a Seraph chapter, so we're back with Meliki Neath. She has another encounter with medical staff. This time, a nurse visits her in her home. Uh, the witness required a checkup because uh, this is the second time that the, inv- the involuntary memory you know, uh, interrogation recall thing happened. And it says, Neath exceeded out of a sense of good practice, though she privately believes the concern is misplaced. She wants to keep moving ahead on the case, and she's getting frustrated. Another quote here, she says, there's such a thing as too much oversight. Eventually, she gets fed up, and she gets the witness to kick the nurse out of her flat and goes through her post-recall routine to make sure that she's, like, lucid and in her own self. Things that would defy dream logic. So she like bounces a ping pong ball around. She flicks a pen flashlight on off once, twice, three, four, five times because her instinct is to stop at three and dreams use precisely the recollection of habit to construct a facade of the real. 
And finally, she reads poetry, defamiliarizing herself with the act of reading as much as possible, forcing her eyes to pick out each letter before assembling the words as if she was learning a new language. The poetry fragment she reads here goes like this. I am the combination to adore that fools and wise with equal case undo. We'll come back to this later. This is, this is going to be poetry hour. I'm just warning you now. There have been four poems that have been referenced here in the book so far, and I realize that I haven't gone into any of them yet. So since this is a shorter chapter, I think I'm going to do that on this pod. So she goes on and consults with the witness about some of the main points of the Athenaeus fragment, Augustine, Alcahes, Chamber of Isis, Isis the goddess. And it gives the same sort of like Wikipedia summary on the historical stuff that I shared in the last chapter with the same note about Chamber of Isis. Like this doesn't seem to be in the historical record, right? Invention mm. of, of the book Dang. or of the memory or whatever. At a certain point, she kind of stops the witness from telling her more things because it says here, in general, she allows the witness to check her own intuitions and crunch numbers. She does not like to ask the machine for clues. The whole point of an inspector is to follow her own path and find things that an analytical tool, however complex and algorithmically mysterious, cannot see. This next question falls somewhere in the gray area. Well, significant points of, of confluence. Kiriakos segment, Athenaeus segment. Witness responds, kidnapping. A journey into darkness, chaos, gods, and monsters of the classical and Roman Mediterranean, especially Firespine and Stop. The recitation stops immediately between phonemes. Kyriakos doesn't mention Firespine. The patriarch, Nikolaos Megalos, references it obliquely in his first meeting with Kyriakos. We shall once more have fire in our spines, and Greece shall be torn no longer. Confidence? There's no immediate ground to imagine is significant. But it is a specific term with a low likelihood of random occurrence. The most plausible reason for its presence is that it meant something to Hunter, and she included it unconsciously. That meaning need not be of interest, and yet it may assist us in uncovering more about her. So she identifies what's going on as a Scheherazade gambit. Basically, after Tubman mentioned that this was a narrative blockade, she did some research on narrative blockades in academic text and learned that a Scheherazade gambit is like, you know, you're stringing together. Uh, you go back and forth between two semi-related stories to be able to drag them both out for longer. And it's named after, you know, the 1001 Nights in which Scheherazade, the Persian queen, is captured, tricks her captor into hearing a thousand stories, weaving into each other by time. Anyway, so a Scheherazade gambit would be a really impressive feat and much more difficult and even dangerous, perhaps, than uh, just a normal narrative blockade. And she starts to suspect that this might be related to Diana's cause of death. But on the other hand, is there something so valuable in her memories that would cause her to go through all this length to avoid capture or being known? If she finds herself asking how the attending interview team would have reacted, might they have assumed that such a complex offense entailed something troubling to defend? Perhaps, especially as the stories are not entirely disconnected. In each of them, a malign divinity touches the real and threatens to tear the world apart. That tantalizing hint of threat unverified and, unless the walls can be brought down, unverifiable, is exactly the kind of thing interrogators have nightmares about, in which case they would have become urgent and even hasty. Was that haste fatal to a woman with nothing to conceal save her atavistic taste for intrusion? But if it was, what about Rigno Lernrock? So 
after this, she has her meeting with Oliver Smith, who Tubman mentioned. He was the uh, high political mucky muck, tomorrow's man, etc. He's uh, a clean-shaven guy wearing a designer raincoat and a charcoal suit with a pocket watch. He wants to belong in the setting, the inspector considers, or to it. Smith could be standing on either side of a hole in time, a man from 1950 or 1890. He wears the sartorial markers of establishment and education without irony. He is not satirizing the trace elements of the 20th century and the public school system's military caste. He is simply their inheritor in a better time, white, arrogant, brilliant, and doesn't propose to pretend otherwise. Brown hair blows in the breeze coming on off the river, age indeterminate, and she suspects made so by quite expensive cosmetic surgery. She already doesn't like him. <laughs> yeah. So she's using an app on the witness to help her conduct this interview called a kinesic assistant, which instructs her how to use like body language and subverbal cues to condition the people she's talking to to regard her in a more positive manner. Says the machine prompts her to turn outwards, inviting him to resume his contemplation of the water. She has engaged the rolling kinesic assistant for this interview. Smith is under essentially the same scrutiny he would be if he were strapped into a lie detector. The local observation cameras and audio pickups feeding the witness, along with Smith's own devices, with more than enough data to give a precise assessment of his levels of stress and excitement. Based on these perceptions, the witness will instruct Neath on the timing of her questioning, the pace, the flow. The conversation will feel to Smith as if he has met a deeply interesting and sympathetic person and is sharing only what he has always meant to. Neath turns obediently, and a moment later, Smith does too, unconsciously echoing her posture. I just thought it's an interesting sort of application of witness tech and how it's being used and get a little more sense of like the depth of like even person to person interaction that is sort of mediated by the witness and the the power that it can give to people in authority like her. And yeah, it so, makes me wonder is who has access to this app. <laughs> yeah, right. So Smith is familiar with this case and he's familiar with the term of Shahrazad Gambit regarding the stories that are being uncovered in Hunter's memories. He says, must by definition echo her own life. How closely Smith spreads his hands. So he doesn't know. Uh, He says, but I'd bet each one contains elements that are significant to her, either by close analogy or symbolically. Not something he can really put his hand on from the outside. So she asks him what exactly his job is. His official title is, he's the director of title flow at Turnpike Trust. I'm going to go a little bit long here because this is kind of a connecting point of how some of the more political concepts in the Neath chapters connect to some of the more metaphysical ideas in the book. It says, so she asks, what is tidal flow exactly? Why does Turnpike Trust need experts in whatever you do? He says, we're the masters of intangibles and predictions. It all begins with traffic jams, if you can believe it. The city is tidal and not just because of the river. People come to work in the morning, leave in the evening. There are cross-currents from tourists, transport hubs. It's complex. We manage the interactions. When you get stuck in the Blackwell Tunnel, that's me having a very bad day. And in the end, it's not real. It's perceptual. The weather forecast says one thing. The public mood says another. The economy is up or down. The news is good or bad. What fuzzy variables produce what decisions that result in a snarl up at Hangar Lane? You have to understand that over the course of a year, bad traffic is massively expensive in terms of lost business, public health, unnecessary consumption of resources, 
And that's before you factor in the soft variables like how traffic delays influence whether people consider they've had a positive experience overall of doing business here. Our performance at Tidal Flow makes a genuine difference to the figures for the capital. So we're hodgepodge, behavioral economics, mathematics, of course, neuroscience, self-organizing critically. They hate us at university departments because everything we publish is interdisciplinary and doesn't fit their models, but it's evidence-based, so they have to pay attention. Models are never quite good enough. The territory is always new. She lets her face continue to register uncertainty, even confusion. Oh, Oliver, you're so clever. I will never understand unless you say it right out. He smiles, evidently encouraged. So, you know, kinesic assistance, that word. Yeah. He says, we turn broadly unconnected data into narratives, narratives into data we can understand and work with. We investigate and strive to influence in the sense of the world people invest in every morning when they choose their route to work. So they actually get there sometime before noon. We have to know what they're thinking and then give them the information they haven't yet realized they want so they know which method will serve them best. Quite often, of course, they take one route over another, over and over again, out of habit. Not much to be done there. But there are those what you might call floating voters, people who are actively looking for the most efficient journey or the most relaxed. I always envy those ones, soft seat commuters. Strikes me as a very good way to live. They're generally employed by newer firms with flexible hours. They take their work home with them. They show a high index of satisfaction. They live longer, too, and there's no noticeable difference in income distribution across the group. Well, One day, perhaps I shall retire to one of those companies, but that's what we do. We help people in their chosen direction. We remind them to ask themselves where they want to go and how they want to get there, and then we help them do it the right way. But the important thing is the how, by creating and understanding narratives and what they are inside the brain and where they touch the real world. God, that is so cool. Yeah, so as a data guy... His job is so cool. (laughs) As a data guy, I'm sure you're just buzzing with this, but like... Oh, my Lord. <laughs> uh, and he lives in a future where that information is mineable. Yeah. Like, I talk about that stuff, some of that stuff, conceptually. Right. And how cool it would be try to predict how our customers will act or perform. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. That entire insight about traffic is so cool in that. I had a feeling that this might be one of the rare moments where our nerdy, non-nerd culture co- uh, interests intersect. <laughs> you know, just man, like, I really don't want. I really don't want this guy to be a bad guy. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry to be like an antagonist. I, yeah. I like him. I like his job. You know what? That's fine. Get rid of him. Give me his job. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, on the same side, it's like it's about influencing people in ways that they don't understand and see coming that they they don't that that's being conditioned for them before they're able to to make a a conscious or or a consensual choice in the matter. So is it so? Okay, I guess the way he is presenting it, it, it makes it sound like he's giving those like floaters the optimum route on like a gps and either they take it or they don't right yeah so i don't know like and and he's it's basically um, a predictive google maps that looks at everything yes so the only (laughs) (laughs) this is where my like this is where my like evil megalomania comes out Uh uh-huh but like it works if everybody goes Right. Like if everybody if everybody feeds it, it'll work perfectly. 
But once you get people who fight it or don't want to give information to it, it's no longer a complete set of information and is no longer accurate. Right, which is kind of the the argument against Diana, right? Right. She she is hampering the uh, the efficacy of of these because she's denying them a crucial part of the data set for it all to come together. Yeah. But I would say it also like it works the same for everybody. If there's no like there are patterns in there that will privilege certain people. And, you know, like if it's trying to make if it has to decide what, you know, something for one person over another, like, does it wait? Who is more important to the model? You know, um, if, if I guess this is, the model that I would build, it would. Right. But so like, it matters who builds the model and for what purpose. Yes. So yeah. every and that's kind of the thing. It's like the way they presented it is it takes every single model out there and it can tweak it towards the predepositions that any individual will have. Yeah. If they're the type that will do this, then we give them that. If they're the type that would prefer this, then we give them that. But you can only do that. You can only tailor those kinds of suggestions if you have every piece of data about that person. Right. If you are introducing a foreign person to the system, then whatever we tailored them is going to be incomplete or wrong and they will have a bad experience and then that's going to generate this bad negative press out. Right. But that's because they didn't give us everything, us <laughs> being <laughs> the data people. <laughs> so and like <laughs> so like I hear what you're saying and I agree if you have God, it's so bad to say dissenters. <laughs> but like if, if you have people in the system that don't want to share everything, yeah, then that's gonna create that's gonna create a flawed system for everyone. And in, that's the like really cold data specific megalomaniac, <laughs> let me rule the world perspective. <laughs> Cause like I hear you and I hear the the concern, but I yeah. but in a perfect system that's only well it's only it's own it can only be a concern if you have members of the data set that are not giving every aspect of their profile right but how that's could you the possibly only way know absolutely everything because it's the witness right right so, but that yeah. was, and, that, and that's true and like you know the the tailored path for me 10 years ago is vastly different than what I think the tailored path for me now. Right. right yeah. So you're going to, you have to design a system that can adapt to a maturing individual. Right. And that's where that's, that's <laughs> kind of the, uh, that's where things can get messy with this yeah. kind of system. Yeah. You're assuming, it's, you're assuming it's like a video game character where they stay the same the right, entire or way. They level or, up it at specific points or that are, you know, yeah. uh, predictable by intervals or story outcome. Yeah. It's funny. I also work in my, my day job. I work at a software company that, that does things with AI and speech analytics. And I was talking with my boss recently about one of the problems, or actually I was on a, um, listening to some, some of the engineers and data scientists talk about one of the problems that they run into is model drift. 
where they're trying to use machine learning tools to determine, you know, what's happening on a phone call. And they'll use like a specific set of words to try and see when a favorable outcome, like a sale or something has occurred. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things they're running into with longer term customers right now is model drift where some of the oldest phone calls don't have as much relevance to what successful phone call today sounds like. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that. Oh, I love that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true, man. Like once you have in, in this, in the Nomon verse, you have your customers are however old they are. A successful phone call for a 10-year-old is going to be very different from a 15 to an 18 to a 30-year-old. It's true. Like, so you have all this historical data, but you have to give more weight to your data for the last X months. And as it goes out, you have to minimize the, the weight of the data, but you have to keep that data. It's, right. oh, man. What an interesting and, world. And, you know, I mean, you, you also hear about stories like, and again, this is something that we had to, to deal with at work, like predictive policing, where they try and use AI to determine where police should be stationed based on the highest probability of where crime should occur, would occur, you know, and to sort of determine likely optimized patrolling routes and something like that is historically outrageously racist at the end of the day an ai is only as good as the people who programmed it and the data that it adjusts and if you are feeding a predictive policing model a hundred years worth of data that comes from racist policing it's going to show you how to do racist policing but because right. it came, because it came from an ai we all look at it like oh it's impartial you know, this isn't humans making right. racist decisions. This is some sort of impartial, optimized thing. And no, this is at the end of the day, this this all comes from people. Yeah, there's, garbage the, in, there's garbage a, out. a real myth about impartiality in something that comes from that's algorithmically generated or machine learning generated, or we say, oh, this wasn't touched by our very subjective minds but it follows the same biases as the people in the society that created it right well so and that's the problem in in my head where the witness works and that doesn't is in all of our predictive models that we've made to date they're all partial sets Mm -hmm. we don't have every single citizen and every single piece of information about those citizens to make an accurate model we only have what's reported Right. So take like sexual assault. Sure. If we had a system that followed every individual, we would know how many who are who's committing these sexual assaults, and how many are actually happening, not just the ones that are being reported. Right. To totally. give a more clear model of the five guys that are actually, you know, being mm-hmm. assholes. But like also just we actually know what neighborhoods these people are living in, not where these incidents are occurring. Right. But right. It, you just, you have the entire set. And yep. when you have the entire set, then you're no longer, I, theoretically, you're no <laughs> longer dealing with a racial bias. Right. But when you're 
creating a data set out of what's reported by a subset of individuals, it's right. going to have that implied bias by that subset, to your point. Right. But so if we had a system that had all of the sets, <laughs> <laughs> then theoretically you would not have, you could make a bias, a, a bias or racially charged subset. You could. However, right. ideally, and especially if AI is looking at the entire set, what the AI is throwing out, the analysis that it's throwing out, hopefully, theoretically, is not charged in any sort of bias. For sure. But well, we'll never know. Well, it's and damn near this, impossible. This uh, book will touch on some of these issues in a more concrete way soon enough. Awesome. I, I love this uh, discussion. I think it's going to keep going. I think this is an interesting conversation between both of us because I think we come at it from slightly different, yeah. different perspectives. Okay, so after this sort of dive into Smith's job, she starts asking him more directly about the case. He mentions that he's helped out the inspector's office on cases before, and he says, in the past, we've assisted your department quite successfully, often with people who process differently, who maybe have had brain accidents in the past, or even who are born with one or or another sense missing, and whose brains have repurposed the areas that normally deal with that sense to do something else. This, well, it's on another order, to be honest. I imagine some of the straight-out neuro people will work on this one for years. The witness cuts in to let her know that there's a beautiful view coming of a break in the clouds, and they both take a moment to turn and watch it. There will be a break in the clouds in 10 seconds, the witness advises. The, the view eastwards will be striking. They turn together into a blaze of oil paint fire, London out of time. Smith looks over at her and smiles. It is their first eye contact since they began to talk shop, and she responds before the system nudges her to do so, smiling in turn. You have the serendipity flag active, Smith says. Do you enjoy it? So this is another app on the witness, a serendipity uh -huh. flag. And he reveals that he designed it himself, you know, regrets that he did it on company time and not fudged and said that he did it in a way that he could make more money off of it, basically hold a patent. This interaction makes her kinesic assistant go absolutely crazy. So she presses her advantage and uh, asks directly about Hunter and the case and what comes next. And Smith kind of says, you know, the best thing to do is to push through. But if that wasn't working, what he would do is to try and consciously introduce a counter narrative, something that recombines all these disparate pieces into one story. And that would either reconstitute or lead to Hunter's own sense of self. She asks, could you have done what she did? He shrugs. I suppose so. If I'd come up with it and if I'd been sufficiently motivated... The possibility is there in the technology and in the brain, but it's a question of conviction. I don't see the need, so I can't imagine actually doing it. It seems so unnecessary. She nods and drops her last question as if it's a formality. Classic Columbo. Have you ever heard of something called Firespine? He shudders. Sounds like infrastructure. Summing himself up perfectly. So, interesting character there. So she leaves the meeting with Smith, and the witness informs her that one of Diana's novels, The Mad Cartographer's Garden, is at a nearby antique bookstore not far out of the way. So it sends her an automated rickshaw, kind of like a self-driving, not car, bike type thing. You know, just, it's like a little rickshaw. It's a cart that, you know, you can close over yourself. 
and it takes her straight to the bookstore and she remarks about how comfy it is and how it's making her feel sleepy, but she pushes through it. She meets Saul Shand, the owner of the bookstore, who assures her that there are no, no tote bags or branded pencils in a place like this. It's all about the books. Uh, something of a romantic. She asks for the mad car- cartographer's garden, and he says, Shan's expression flickers with, my, with what might be a kind of symph- uh, sympathy, as for one stricken with an incurable affliction, but he nods. We can but try, he agrees. And he checks all of the shelves, he checks the computer system, he checks a cloth-bound ledger. He says it, it should be here, but it isn't. He reveals that all of Hunter's books are what he calls ghost books. Says, in the trade, ghost book is something between an irritation and a great curiosity. There are not many, perhaps a hundred in all. There are books that are only cataloged, never actually sold. Like today, I should have a copy of Mad Cartographer's Garden. By every measure, I know it's in the shop, and yet I also know that it is not. In the shop, if we were to turn it upside down into the street and check every title on the pavement, in a month from now, someone will offer me a lot containing one of her other books, Five Cardinals of Z, but I won't be able to secure the collection. Later, I will get in touch with a lucky purchaser to see if they will sell, and they find that they have already done so. They will gladly tell me they enjoyed the story while they possessed it. A brash adventure in in which the holy Afric saint, Augustine, Neath closes her eyes for a moment. A random example, or one drawn from life? Shan doesn't notice. Takes on a sort of Tarzan role, fighting with his sorceress lover against a magical invasion from the Visigothic West. When I track down the next purchaser with my offer, they will tell me the book is about something quite different. They might be quite irate. In any case, they will have sold it on. So yeah, that's weird. Yeah. It- so it's a book that's in the inventory, but no one has it, but everyone's read it. Yeah, and he gives a few examples of a way a ghost book might happen. One where an author has a relationship breakdown with their publisher, and it gets printed in all the catalogs and pre-sold to all of the bookstores, but then the relationship breaks down and the author destroys the manuscript rather than send it to the publisher. And so all of these bookstores have records of owning it, but it never actually existed. Or uh, it could be a book that was actually printed at one point, but then all of the copies got destroyed. A Hollywood producer buys the rights to the book for adaptation, then buys the entire print run of the book to keep it, it away from the market until the film is made and make some money once the demand for the book, first edition of the book surges, only the film is never finished, and then, you know, there's no surging demand for the book, and the book disappears. Or a religious institution seeks to buy every single copy of a book that they find objectionable, or for whatever reason, such as a children's story rumored to contain an actual magic spell. A bit of sleuthing on my part led to me to believe that this is a reference to a real 2017 book called The Lost Words by Robert McFarlane, with illustrations by Jackie Morris, which Wikipedia says without citation, may have been inspired by some recent editions of the Oxford Junior Dictionary, which have removed some words associated with nature to add more associated with technology, uh, like removing Kingfisher to add chat room and broadband. Um, What? Yeah. It's uh, Kingfisher is an existing bird. Yeah. Wait, is this are you reading or is this real? This is real. (laughs) This is this is this is my yeah. In 2017, apparently, Oxford Junior Dictionary removed some words more associated with nature, such as Kingfisher, 
and added words more associated with technology, like chat room and broadband. How dare it? It's not even an extinct bird. Well, I don't know what to say. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. Oxford Junior is this like dictionary junior? Yeah. It's like it's a kid's it's dictionary. Like a kid's dictionary. Okay. Yeah. But it also, you know, again, in, in the sort of like when you, you know, these kids won't know what that is unless they look for it. You know, they don't know what they mm-hmm. don't know. They're being in the grand uh, tradition of turnpike trust of title flow here, being a little more conditioned towards one thing rather than another. So anyway, yeah, this- if they read the Oxford Junior Dictionary. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. In which case, they're already a nerd. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Okay. But uh, anyway, that, that's a real book. It's not the subject of any widespread religious opposition now, but I suppose give it 50 years. Shan then relays some rumors about Hunter's books that he's heard. He says, There are wonderful rumors about them, the occult ramblings of the foolish and the mad. Hunter's books contain an encrypted message that reveals the underlying nature of God's creation. Or perhaps they are the physical body of an angel re- expressed as text, something so strange and splendid that it cannot exist here except as a collection of beautiful words. That is why no two accounts of the books are ever the same. Perhaps the books contain Hunter herself, written down and endlessly replicated in some form of literary immortality. Now that she is dead, perhaps that is the best thing to believe. Although, of course, if that were the case, one would imagine that they would be everywhere so that the words would be read and she would live in the firework flashes of minds across the world. Stasis, after all, is a poor form of longevity. One would look for iteration, yes, for engagement and enlivening. Maybe that's the point. The publication plan required her death. Maybe they will all become available again. Who knows? Perhaps that's even why she did. Maybe it's what she's intended. That would be the most outrageous, terrible thing. The inspector contemplates the outcome of her investigation in which she is compelled to place under arrest for a sedition a pile of limited edition magical realist novels allegedly containing a human mind and devoutly hopes Mr. Shan's construction of the situation is not the right one. She feels confident in believing that it is not, on the basis that such an idea is plainly poppycock. Shan's gallant version of English must be rubbing off on her. But she does not entirely dismiss the possibility of some secret hidden in Hunter's books. That is always the position one occupies in the witness, that something is taking place that needs to be observed and understood. This, of course, makes for a vulnerability to recursive investigations. The acknowledged danger of assuming that an absence of evidence is is itself evidence of obfuscation. Except that this is not precisely an absence of evidence. If anything at all, the evidence is bounteous. Perhaps Hunter's books do not really exist. She somehow hornswoggled the world into believing they did in some weird art prank. It just might have just about have been doable a couple decades ago. The inspector would prefer this not be the case. The idea that the books might themselves be mythical alarms her. The intrusion of Hunter's unreal histories into a world that should be more tangible. The notion that they might all be blank and contain no information, or maybe exist only as description, while Hunter's mind apparently contains far more information than it should, raises the hair on her neck. Something. Something. She asks, did she ever write about fire specifically? A fire motif? Fire spine? Fire judges? He says, oh dear me, no, I don't think I've heard of that one. Neith explains that it's not a title, just a phrase. He says, no, doesn't know what that means. 
So she leaves the bookstore and takes another disturbingly comfortable rickshaw ride back home. She's completely exhausted and falls asleep. Definitely no work tonight. Just sleep. The story begins as soon as she sits down on the bed, and she dives in as if she has been thirsty all day, only now found water to drink. So another memory is coming. And that's the chapter. Okay, did you say that she noticed some books that are rumored to have a human brain in them? That, that is the rumor that Shand gives about Hunter's books. Oh. You know, the, the sum total in some sort of encoded way will directly translate her mind Got it. to the reader. For some reason, I thought you said that she looked around the bookstore and saw, and she's like, there was nothing to write him up about. Uh, but then she noticed there was a couple of books that were rumored to have uh, a oh, human brain, no. and she took note. And I was like, um, excuse? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Skip past this? <laughs> I would not skip okay. right past that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, so some random stuff here for the end, because I I said it would be poetry hour. The fragment of the poem that she reads, here's the full one. I am the combination to adore that fools and wise with equal ease undo. Your unthought thoughts are changes still unread in me, without whom nothing's to be said. It is a spiral way that trues my arc towards central silence and my unreached mark. Singing and saying till his time be done, the traveler does nothing, but the road goes on. Without my meaning nothing, nothing means. I am the wave for which the worlds make way, a term of time and sometimes two of death. I am the silence in the things you say. That's a poem by the author Howard Nemirov. The title, (laughs) you're not going to like this, is Querendo (laughs) Invenientis, which is... The name of the scroll that Athenaeus wrote. Oh, man. And also the name of one of Diana Hunter's novels. Right. Oh, jeez. And it, okay. it, it, uh, it translates to Seek and You Shall Find. And it's a, a reference to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's, uh, Jesus's <laughs> classic track there. I'm going to get back to the other poems in a sec, just because that's how I wrote them down in my notes. So there's a quick aside that gives a hint of the year in this, which I thought you might be interested in. So she meets Oliver Smith at the Victoria Embankment on the shore of the Thames, and she mentions that when the embankment was built in 1870, it wasn't engineered to handle 200-odd years of global warming. So there you go. It's at least 2070. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. We're so close to getting the witness. (laughs) In the, uh, the discussion of ghost books, Shand makes reference to a South American author with a ghost book who I believe he's referencing Jorge Luis Borges, even though I couldn't find any mention of a, a ghost book of his. But Borges is a real like titan of uh, is Argentine author, progenitor of modern and postmodern literature, and one of the originators of the more postmodern tradition that this book is definitely entering into working with non-linearity, labyrinths, mirrors, esoteric mysticism, and dealing with a lot with things that ought not to be possible. These are very common themes with Borges. And actually, the character Lunrot, 
is likely a reference to the protagonist of Borges's short story, Death in the Compass, a detective. The protagonist in that is named Eric Lenroth, spelled the same. Lenroth is tracking a set of murders that he connects with the Hebrew unspeakable name of God, YHWH. We speak it as Yahweh, I guess, but, you know, they consider this like the holy of holies and all of that. And so, you know, there's a clue with a Y, clue with an H, etc. Um, the detective cracks the case only to find the whole thing has been a trap laid by, <laughs> laid by his nemesis who means to kill him knowing that he would over-intellectualize the thing. <laughs> and Lone Road spends his last minutes complaining that the trap was too complex and a simpler maze based on Zeno's paradox rather than a rhombus would have done better. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, another thing, I, I mentioned a couple times that Neith mentions how comfortable the rickshaws are, that the witness calls for her transportation and how much they make her want to sleep. And after that whole bit about tidal flow and circumstances influencing people unconsciously, that makes me a bit uneasy, perhaps. Mm. I, I might just be reading into it, though, because that's the kind of the thing with plots and paranoia is you never know whether it's real or you're being paranoid, which is kind of one of the enjoyable parts of reading a postmodern novel, especially Thomas Pynchon. So let's go through the rest of the poems real quick. This first one is called I Dream I'm the Death of Orpheus, Orpheus by Adrienne Rich. And this is when Diana Hunter was brought into interrogation. She was reciting parts of this. I dream I'm the death of Orpheus. I am walking rapidly through striations of light and dark thrown under an arcade. I am a woman in the prime of life with certain powers, and those powers severely limited by authorities whose faces I rarely see. I am a woman in the prime of life, driving her dead poet in a black Rolls Royce through a landscape of twilight and thorns. A woman with a certain mission, which, if obeyed to the letter, will leave her intact. A woman with the nerves of a panther. A woman with contacts among hell's angels. A woman feeling the fullness of her powers at the precise moment when she must not use them. A woman sworn to lucidity, who sees through the mayhem the smoky fires of these underground streets, her dead poet learning to walk backward against the wind on the wrong side of the mirror. Adrian Rich, 1968. The next one, a fragment of a poem that Neith used to check her lucidity, or one that she used to use to check her lucidity before this case started. And it's non sum qualis eram bonae sub regno sinare by Ernest Dowson. And if you recognize the word regno in regno. there, so did I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and here it is. The title translates to something like, it's a quote from Horace, and it means, I am not what I was when good Sinara was queen. Last night, Ah, yesternight, betwixt, betwixt her lips and mine there fell a shadow, Sinara. Thy breath was shed upon my soul between the kisses and the wine, and I was desolate and sick of an old passion. Yea, I was desolate and bowed my head. I have been faithful to thee, Sinara, in my fashion. All night upon mine heart I felt her warm heart beat. Night long within mine arms in love and sleep she lay. Surely the kisses of her bought red mouth were sweet. But I was desolate and sick of an old passion when I awoke and found the dawn was gray. I have been faithful to thee, Sinara, in my fashion. 
I have forgot much, Sainara. Gone with the wind. Flung roses, roses riotously with the throng, dancing to put thy pale lost lilies out of mind. But I was desolate and sick of an old passion. Yea, all the time, because the dance was long, I have been faithful to thee, Sainara, in my fashion. I cried for madder music and for stronger wine. But when the feast is finished and the lamps expire, there falls thy shadow, Sainara. Thy night, the night is thine. And I am desolate and sick of an old passion, yea, hungry for the lips of my desire. I have been faithful to thee, Sainara, in my fashion. And last one. When did we get reference to that poem? Yeah, that was the poetry fragment that Neith used before this case started to check her lucidity. It was it's her old her old poem, basically, the one that she used in the start it, right after that, uh, starting starting this case and used it in chapter one is called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Timpson. And I found a Facebook post that is Richard Burton's reading of the poem. Richard Burton, I think, is also the most um acclaimed English translator of The Thousand and One Nights. Oh, God, this is long. Never mind. I'm not going to read all this. <laughs> I'll, I'll drop a link. I'll drop a link in the, in the chat. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you read it. Oh, wait. No, that's an analytic reading. Okay. This is, this is doable. It's long, <laughs> but not that long. Okay. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in midst of the tears. I hid from him. Uh, and the hymns here are capitalized. So, God, sure. Mm -hmm. I hid from him, and under running laughter, up vistaed hopes I sped, and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears, from those strong feet that followed and followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic insistency, they beat, a voice and a voice beat, more insistent than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. I pleaded outlaw-wise by many a hearted casement curtained red, trellised with intertwining charities. For though I knew his love who followed, yet I was sore dread, lest having him I must not be, uh, I must have not beside. But if one little casement parted wide, the gust of his approach would clash it too. Fear wist not to evade as love wist to pursue. Across the margin of the world I fled and troubled the gold gateways of stars, smiting for shelter on their clanged bars, fretting to dulcet jars and silvern chatter the pale ports of the moon. I said to dawn, be sudden, to eve, be soon. With thy young skyey blossoms heap me over from this tremendous lover. Float thy vague veil about me, lest he see. I tempted all his servitors but to find my own betrayal in the, cons in the constancy. In faith to him their fickleness to me, their traitorous trueness, and their loyal deceit. To all swift things for swiftness did I sue. Clung to the whistling mane of every wind. But whether they swept smoothly fleet the long savannas of the blue, or whether thunder-driven they clanged his chariot thwart a heaven, plashy with flying lightnings round the spurn of their feet, fear wist not to evade as love wist to pursue. Still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, came the following feet and a voice above their beat. Not shelters thee who will not shelter me. I sought no more 
that after which I strayed in the face of man or maid. But he still within the little children's eyes seems something that something replies. At least they are for me, surely for me. I turned them very wistfully. You know what? This is long. I'm not doing the rest of this. <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> anyway, it's about the pursuit of God and, yeah. you know, and the pursuit. And the Tehran Hopkins Club here calls it unquestionably one of the landmarks of English poetry throughout its history. The narrative of horrifying and yet dev- uh, and devastating yet enchanting psychologically twisted relationship wow. with God. So there we go. There you go. That's all I got for Nomon this week. And the poetry cool. club. Yeah. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. So when you're reading this, how often are you going back into like every other previous chapter to be like, wait, I saw this before, right? Less so on this, my second read, you know, as I'm because <laughs> that's literally what I'm doing in going back and doing all these notes. But a lot in my first read, just like, wait, what? Because uh, uh, like I said, <laughs> like the most enjoyable aspect of this book to me was while I was reading it, pondering what the hell it all meant. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That was fun. Yeah. Oh man. I want to see more of this data guy. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really, I, I, I think you're really going to enjoy the next few chapters. Awesome. Yeah, I re- I still I really liked that insight into traffic. Yeah, right. Um, it's funny when fictional characters state things that everybody knows but no one talks about. Mm, yeah. Like you know, it's it's never been explicitly said that, you know, your traffic can influence your experience at a new like coffee shop. Right, totally. Like the amount of traffic that you come across just to get somewhere new has nothing to do with the coffee to, shop itself, right? Has nothing to do with the business you're going to, but it will influence how well you receive this new um, space. For sure. And and like everybody knows it and anytime someone says it out loud, everyone's like, "Yeah, it's true." But it's <laughs> not like it's not like this social rule that we all just know right and so when you have when you have an author state these things you're like oh shit yeah Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah that was fun i I, I like this chapter i like last chapter two with the egg yeah and the like connecting cardinal directions and all that kind of stuff so yeah, yeah this is this is uh this is getting interesting sweet yeah next week we have another chapter chapter six Chapter six next week is going to be called Another Set of Colors for me. And what are you reading next week? Next week, hopefully I'm reading four books. And these are, are, this is going to be, I'm excited for this week. Okay, (laughs) so I've got, I've got Avengers Volume 7, um, Age of Conchu, Chaz, my third slash fourth favorite Marvel character. Oh, you're Uh, downgrading. Night. Uh, we've got another volume of Daredevil from Chid Zdarsky. Yay! Uh, this will be volume five, Truth or Dare. Stoked for that. Um, Me too. We've got Spider-Man Bloodline. This is, I believe this is a side story. It's a kind of a one-off. It's only five issues. It's written by J.J. Abrams. Um, <laughs> okay. So I'm interested in that, yeah. 
And then I have, I, I guess it's the only volume of Strange Academy because Doctor Strange opens up a school for uh, gifted wizards, I guess. Oh, um, that's cool. Young, young, young folk. Yeah. And so um, Zelma. That name is not familiar to me. Zelma Thurman. She, she got introduced in a previous run to Doctor Strange volumes ago in the run where Doctor Strange uh, has to reset magic. Uh, oh, right. That's where they introduced Zelma. She is, she is a librarian with a picture-perfect photographic memory. Sweet. She wanted to study under Strange. And Wong uh, left Strange for a little bit to go do his own thing. And so Zelma kind of took over as like caretaker at the Sanctum Sertorum for a little bit. Sure. Wong is back. And you, you said it, her I, name I is believe, Zelma, so Zelma Thurman. Showed, I think her last name is Thurman. Okay, but no relation um, to Dom, to Domino. Oh uh, no, <laughs> Got at check. least not established. Not yeah. established. She showed up in one of the last Doctor Strange volumes I had, and she mm-hmm. made a reference to, to the Academy. So I believe she's working there. Okay, cool. The book itself has a review, a one sentence review blurb thing from Patton Oswalt. Oh, nice. <laughs> it says a kinetic mystical comic about the kind of wannabe wizards who would have spent all their time at Hogwarts in detention. <laughs> <laughs> Sick. Yeah. So these, these four books for next week are shaping up to be kind of a uh, big hitters. I think. That's so exciting. Sweet. That's me for next week. Sounds great. Anyway, well, hopefully next week. I'll be able to record in my office and you will be able to record with electricity. Have power. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh tell, tell mom I said hi. How is it that I was the one who had a hurricane and you're the one without power? <laughs> right? This is rude. <laughs> oh my gosh. So ridiculous. But uh, yes, tell, I will tell t- mom I said hi. I and, uh, and we'll just have to put the outro music <sighs> here. All right, great spot. I like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, the fountain is on, so I think I'm all this stuff. Hey, hey, hey. Okay. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, man. Yeah, take care of yourself, man. Peace. Peace.